Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We're going to start on questions. So let me open it up to students here. Anybody want to start off? Um, not not really like a specific question per se, but like maybe you could elaborate more on this. I mean, first of all, you mentioned the uh, martyrdom of Al Hassan Al Hussein, and to me, I thought you know the typical or the the fitan, right? Like the typical Sunni narrative is tawaqqaf. Uh, everyone did their ijtihad etc. Um, and that just evacuates the whole historical episode from any moral lesson. Um, that's kind of one reaction that I had. But then um, the way that you summed up the surah, um, my takeaway is like someone who's uh, tried to read a lot on uh, moral theory and the um, and never really been able to sort of commit or you, you know like you, you read about consequentialism about, about deontology about virtue ethics and like see all sides of the argument without ever being uh, like decisive about one and I felt that Zumar basically provides a moral philosophy that is like so clear cut and crystal. Um, it's 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 a moral paradigm because you're when you say that you know each individual matters and it's not just about the community. You immediately obliterate what consequentialism has to say about uh, ethical theory. Um, and and like the the sort of three basic key words that I think would the, like a, a moral theory would be based on is ihsan this idea like the the very word itself kind of folds into a an ethical theory because beauty as part of uh, goodness is like itself gives content to the word goodness um, and then ikhlas and gratitude also right. being all related um, paraphrase a little bit if possible yeah, how do you paraphrase this? Um, Just to comment on the moral theory. Uh, okay, the, 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 the question is so complicated that I don't know how to paraphrase it. <laughs> um, um, what was the first part? <laughs> the, like, how your uh, interpretation, like you, like it doesn't make sense to be ambivalent about the fitan. Oh, oh, the fit, the fitan issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so the, the the question is in two parts. Um, one part is about the the whole issue of um, 
the, the fitna that occurs among the companions of the Prophet after the death of the Prophet. Uh, basically, the, the, the civil war where um, uh, because of the, the, after the assassination of Muawiyah um, and the, the first, the battle of the camel uh, between Aisha and her party, Talha and Zubair, um, who fought with Ali and, and his supporters, and then the division between uh, the party of Ali and the party of Muawiyah, which of course ends in an extreme tragedy with the um, killing of Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet, in in the war in the battle of Karbala um, with Yazid. And what Rami is saying that in Sunni theology, the there is a sort of prevailing idea. Um, that we can't judge between the companions because the companions, each of them had their own ishtihad and so they were all uh, right in a sense. You just can't judge whether, you can't, if that, you, you're not allowed to, to judge whether they were right or they were wrong. Um, and, and, and that's that. Uh, so that's the, the the first part of the question. Um, the The second part is more complicated, and and that's so much of um, consequentialist moral theory <coughs> ultimately doesn't believe in, if you will, in, 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 in absolute moral paradigms. It, 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 everything is when all is said and done, it boils down to, well, let's look at the consequences. Let's look at whether there is more harm than good. And of course, we get into some very difficult questions of, well, how do you even define harm and good? Can we define harm and good? Um, you get into even more complicated questions that what if what if it's the same small group of people that are always harmed and the the, the majority uh, that could be racial could be class could be whatever that are always end up good um, you know so it, it and the, what Rami is saying that the idea of Hosn itself runs counter to consequentialist moral theory because it it um, it delves into virtue ethics. I mean, he didn't say virtue ethics, but we can we can say that 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 there are virtues in and of themselves, and that these are absolute goods, and that it, it, it's not all just relative to one extent or another. I mean, his question is more was more sophisticated than that, but I think that will do. Um, the first part. I mean, it, it is right that Sunnis try to deal with the uh, 
was the point of crisis of a dispute between the companions by basically saying, well, you know, you can't judge. That it's a historical moment that you can't judge and um, we just refrain from supporting any side or opposing any side. But all those Sunnis did say that, they did sit very uncomfortably with another very clear orientation in Sunni thought that heavily sympathized with Hussein in particular, the grandson of the Prophet, and did not sympathize with Yazid. And that, um, uh, in fact, it is quite often Yazid is portrayed as not a very savory character in, in Islamic history. And I, you, you won't find a lot of Sunni sources except the, the, uh, the, the you know, the, the sort of the real al-Hadith folks um, that will refuse to say that Hussein was killed unjustly. In fact, that orientation in Sunni thought is very clear. It's very well represented. Um, but even those who endorse the idea that, well, they were all mushtahids and that their dispute was a form of ishtihad, and so, in a sense, uh, Aisha was right, Talha was right, Zubair was right, Ali was right, Osman was right. They were all right uh, because they were all performing ishtihad. They still had a, a difficult theological challenge. And that is to explain why did Allah allow the companions to engage in this conflict shortly after the death of the Prophet. And you find this very clearly when they discuss things like Ahkam al Um So, one camp said that Allah wanted to teach us that all mujtahids are correct. And some even went as far as saying that the reason that Allah allowed for this conflict is that we can have ahkam al bugha uh, I wrote that, uh, I wrote about that in the rebellion book, uh, with, uh, sort of a school of thought within. But what's interesting is that here, um, they they are it's there is the implication although they no, no they don't say it explicitly even in the Sufi text but although mind you that especially the Sufi orientations are very sympathetic towards Ali and Al Hussein and Al Hassan I mean you will be hard-pressed to find a Sufi orientation that doesn't in all ways, shapes, and forms 
imply, indicate that Muawiyah was wrong. Uh, that's an established thing among Sufis. The more, um, and then you have some Sufis that actually outright just broke with the Sunni theology and said, no, you have to condemn the opponents of, of Ali. Where they draw the line is with Aisha. And they say, well, Aisha and Talha Zubair was different. But, but Muawiyah, uh, uh, anyway. Um, is that the, they, they imply that it was the failure to purify the ego that resulted in this conflict without explicitly saying who is it that didn't purify the ego or who is it. So it's sort of like um, trying to derive a moral lesson while not being very explicit about which party you support or not support. Um, of course, the more Sufi you get, the more they, they actually do support Ali over Muawiyah and Hassan Hussein over the Amods. Um, that's not unusual at all. Because, of course, among the Sufis, Adil Bayt, has have a very very prominent role, and uh, the belief that Adil Bayt uh, were there to guide and lead the Muslim Ummah morally more importantly than politically. They 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 they're not even they don't care quite often whether Adil Bayt led the Muslim Muslim Ummah politically, but that the ethics of the Adil Bayt uh, are in, unimpeachable. Um, so, I mean, and it's not unusual to find these types of tensions within the Islamic tradition. Um, I mean, it, 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 all traditions contain within them points of tensions and orientations that sit uncomfortably with each other. And it's rare that human beings resolve historical dispute conclusively one way or the other. Um, so that's not unusual at all. The, um, the second point, I, all I'm going to say is that it is absolutely true that the theology of Ihsan, the, the, the philosophy of Ihsan would run counter to consequentialism. And although Orientalists have filled many pages to try to prove that Islamic morality was largely uh, consequentialist and deontological, I, again, until we write our own history, and until we write our own philosophical narrative and the story of our own philosophy, I'm very skeptical of all of that. Uh, I, you know, uh, there are Orientalists like Franz Rosenthal or um, or even even someone like Majid Fakhri, who wrote on Islamic philosophy, I, I, I don't put much weight in their work at all. 
there are other people that I respect, like Frank Griffo, but until Muslims tell their own history, and until Muslims read their own philosophy and they explain their own philosophy, I think, to say the least, the jury's out. Um, for a million different reasons, all we know about Islamic philosophy, which has been, 90% of it has been written by Orientalists. And anyone that told you I specialize in Islamic philosophy, they've relied on unread Orientalist writings, 90%. Uh, Muslims have just done a miserable job with their own philosophical legacy. Uh, so many Muslims that even wrote about Islamic philosophy in Arabic or in Persian, or in, they, they go get their degrees in the West and they study with Orientalists and then they, they basically regurgitate what they've learned in Western institutions. I don't know any philosophical tradition that is betrayed by its own people, like Muslims have betrayed their own philosophical traditions. I, I just don't know of any. Um, in Iran, you, you know, you've got Shabestari who goes basically reads Western philosophers and cuts and pastes Western philosophical theory on Islam. I mean, when are we going to grow up and develop our own brains, for God's sake? Um, it just, it, it, it makes me sick. It just really makes me sick. God gave us brains, like, like all other human beings. And all it requires is just the moral courage to do the hard work yourself and, and not be an imitator. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I haven't read good work on Islamic philosophy in a long time. There are sprouts of hope here and there, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it's very hard to specialize in Muslim philosophy in the Muslim world and to have a career as a specialist in Islamic philosophy in Muslim academic institutions. Because the, the way Muslims are in the modern age, they don't care about philosophy. In fact, they don't care about thought, which is bizarre, because if you don't care about thought, then you don't care about being human. You don't care about life. I mean, we are thinking animals. So if you say, I don't care about thinking, then you're just an animal. Um, and then good luck. Um, thank you very much, Professor. Uh, it's more just a point of clarification because there's something that's it's, it's something that's not quite sure fitting in, in, in my head. The, 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 the main theme of the surah is about sincerity in belief, um, but it's mid-Meccan. Virtue and virtue. And, sorry? And virtue. Virtue, okay. But it's mid-Meccan, and it's a time when the Muslims are being persecuted. Now, persecuted, exiled, tortured, etc. Uh, now, persecution 
though for all its challenges, surely persecution is itself a guarantor of sincerity and faith. You know, why else would you be Muslim in Mecca mm -hmm. unless you actually believed it? Um, so there's, you know, this is a community. Sumeya was killed, Bilal was tortured, Abu Bakr spends all his money. D did they need a lesson in sincerity? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It's, and then I'm thinking in my head, is all not this a prelude to what's to come? You know, it's success. You said in the in the halakha, you know, ease is hard, ease is harder than hardship. Mm -hmm. Success attracts hypocrites. Success mm -hmm. attracts ostentation and ego. So is this whole thing about sincerity not actually a prelude, one of the earliest preludes to what's to come? Yeah. Yes, you're suffering now, but times are going to change, and that's a whole different ball game. And that would make the surah thematically more of a late Meccan surah, if not chronologically. Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting point. Um, Perfect. Uh, the, the point is, is that there, there is the, the Surah Zumar focuses on the concept of ikhlas. And, but Muslims at the time are oppressed. And oppression is, you know, when people get are oppressed, it's only the sincere that stick around. Um, because the, the, the ones who are insincere, they, they, they go away. And so the, the entire surah seems to be really a prelude to what's going to come. And that is, you're going to actually be widely successful. And that's going to be a very hard test. And so uh, Joe's point is that it thematically would be, although chronologically it's mid-Meccan, but thematically it's, it's like either late Meccan or even early Medinian, possibly. Um, but it's really an interesting um, point because it is, you're absolutely right that there is, persecution of the, as, is at a height, so you're already, you are, persecution is already guaranteeing that you are attracting people who are sincere. But there, there, there are a couple of points. One is that there are converts um, to Islam that are not from the down trodden, in other words, people who are not going to be persecuted directly. Um, these are the converts, the few converts from the aristocracy of Mecca, and individuals like Abu Bakr or Omar ibn Khattab, who are high above enough in their clan status. But the type of commitment that is going to be required of them is the type of commitment that will in fact call upon them to sacrifice everything for the sake of the persecuted. And I wonder if I mean, we, it is clear that we have so many of the converts of, of, the, of the wealthy in Mecca who converted, literally sacrificed everything 
Um, and I wonder if it if if it hasn't been for a sword like Zomar, whether that type of sacrificial attitude would have been instilled in them, which was necessary for the survival of those the weak elements who were tr very much persecuted. So that's one thing. The other thing is that Zomar. Um, like the narrative from Aisha that the Prophet would recite it every night before prayer, we have similar narratives that it continued to be an often a consistently visited surah throughout the Medinian period. In other words, that we have various reports of um, that such and such companion like Uthman ibn Affan would recite with Zumar every night. And um, although, you know, the Ahlul Hadith, you know, say things like, oh, it was just the Sunnah of the Prophet, so that's why he did it. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's an issue just of the Sunnah of the Prophet. The, the Zumar required that persecution doesn't become the ideology. In other words, when you're persecuted, a lot of times it's the victimhood that becomes your ideology. But what Azumar says basically, yes, you're, going, you're persecuted, but it is the, the, if you will, the ethics of virtue and beauty that has to become your ideology, which is... I mean, such a, an amazing thing to demand of people who are persecuted. Mm -hmm. Because uh, time and again, persecuted people, it is the, the narrative of their, their persecution that becomes the whole core of their ideology. And yet we find the, the, that's actually not at all the, what happens with Muslims. Um, uh, and, and to the point that, you know, those who are don't know better think that it was easy just for Muslims to, to, to die for the sake of God and, and because, because they don't seem obsessed with their own suffering as has happened to so many movements. So it's actually, it's a point of, of remarkable elevation. It's, it's like saying, no, it's, it, you, it, if, if your persecution becomes what it's all about, then it's all about your ego. Um, what is the dhikr for this surah? The dhikr that I followed, although um, at first, let me ask, the dhikr that I followed is the very last ayah of the surah. وَتَرَى الْمَلَائِكَةَ حَفِينَ مِنْ حَوْلِ الْعَرْشِ يُسَبِّحُونَ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّهِمْ وَقُلِهُ بَيْنَهُمْ بِالْحَقِّ وَقِيلَ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ um, which um, for me was the remarkable absolute summation of this entire surah. That after all of this, this, this is the image that you, you hold on to. This is the fundamental principle that you hold on to. Um, um, 
life is going to present you with so many challenges, so many difficult moments, so many highs, so many lows. Um, you're going to be tempted in a million different ways. You're going to fail in a million different ways. You're going to be have an ego trip numerous times. You're going to be disappointed in yourself numerous times. But ultimately, what it's all about is Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. What it's all about. And if you truly understand that, it's all leveled. It's all at a level playing field. All the failures and all the successes. It's, um, um, I remember this is one of the few surahs that I Um, where is it? Hold on. I'm, I'm trying to remember it. Um, I, I didn't use something else in Zikr, but I, I had... I had thought of trying uh, another verse and I never did. Uh, so maybe I shouldn't even talk about it because I. It, what was it? What was the verse? It was. This is what I'm trying um, to remember. Um, and I'm and I and I'm sort of suspecting I had a dream about it and then I but I never did it. Um, what was it? Uh, okay, go on. I'll, let me look at it. I'll, I'll look you at, look found at. your souls. Do not discard the mercy. Ah, God. that's it. Thank you. You read my mind. That's it. <laughs> the despair. Do you, you want to say the number? Yeah, where is it? 57. Uh, 57. Yeah, yeah, it's the, Um, yeah, it is 53. Okay. Do you, are you temporal on this one? It's, it's been 30 minutes, but we can take oh. one last one. Uh, okay, extend it to 45 minutes. Okay. Uh, did you have one? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, my question is about um, the relationship and maybe like current tension between Sharia of Ahkam versus Sharia of Akhlaq um, of uh, positivist commandments, legal side of things versus ethics. Um, and you've written and spoken about um, the need for revival of Akhlaq and ethics mm -hmm. at length. 
And um, while going through the surah, it's hard not to take note of certain verses, for example, the one that you discussed again at length in regards to knowledge and the need to uphold and be at the um, forefront of protecting and learning and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and then I, so it, and, and that juxtaposed with um, your, your common plea with Muslims to make it a priority to spend in the way of knowledge because that's what we need so badly right now. And it mm -hmm. kind of like, again, sounds a, like, a lot like what Hakli was saying in regards to l look at what you need the most and, and focus there. Um, I'm worried that, you know, my question is kind of broad. What is the role of the jurist here in terms of finding a way to wed ahkam that, you know, akhlaqi ahkam that literally come from the Quran but are not necessarily um, put in the same state as hajj and som and, you know, salah and that sort of thing, but clearly right now in the state that we're in, something like knowledge, it, it would almost feel like if if Muslims responded to jurists the way that they used to, that this would be a, a a potential point where a massive ruling would maybe possibly need to come down, where it's, we need to focus all of our attention and money towards preserving and producing, um, you know, knowledge and, and, and building on it in an ethical way, in terms of um, building on ethics. Uh, I just w wondered, where where do you see the role of the jurist in this modern, you know, paradigm? Um, yeah, the role of the jurist and and because you know, I I've I did I've written a lot about ethics and um. I mean, first, it is the role of, of the alam, the, the, the scholar, because the, um, when you have a functioning legal system, um, the opinion of a jurist is simply a part of a total system that it's like a little peg in the process of the production of justice. So, you know, you, you have a jurist and you have judges and you have muftis and you have opinions and you have uh, lawmakers and it, it, it's, it's a, And so the, the 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 jurist is understood as a as as a part of a process in the production of law, and law has a functionality that law is not just theoretical. Law is is something that goes into effect, and then if it's not working, there is a social demand that starts pressuring the law to change. Uh, things have very drastically changed when we started producing law in, in the abstract, 
because law in the abstract is dangerous. Um, law in the abstract, can you imagine if people are prescribing a practicing medicine in the abstract? Like, you know, there is a class of doctors that are told, uh, go ahead, you know, tell us how to treat diseases, but no one actually implements what they say. There, there is no clinical data whatsoever, or very little clinical data. It's not going to be very long before what these doctors are saying is just completely irrelevant to anything, and it just becomes simply the regurgitating of prescriptions that, you know, it's like, you know, can you imagine if, if, if this happened, and so these doctors are in our day and age, saying the prescription is penicillin, you know, using the old medicine, while clinical practice has moved way ahead of time. And that's what happened to Islamic law. I mean, it, when colonialism took Islamic law from its living context, it literally doomed Islamic law to the meaningless, largely meaningless dynamic of issuing prescriptions. But prescriptions without clinical processes. And so Islamic law, so when we, when we are talking about the ethical imperative, what we're really saying is it's time to rethink our hand. It is time to rethink our reality and to understand that it's not a matter of issuing prescriptions anymore. And that, in fact, it's very dangerous to continue issuing prescriptions because there are people that take these prescriptions seriously and could end up causing a lot of damage to themselves. It is time to rethink in fact, rethink our, our entire encounter with the divine and the way that we understand the divine command for us. And in this context, the role of a alim, the role of a true scholar, is literally, as the Quran says, to, to follow the most beautiful, the, most, the best of what is said. And best of what is said, not what is said among the Hausa hundreds of years ago, but what is said now, and which requires mastery of contemporary knowledge, but it also requires mastery of the past. And that's why I think it, it is, to put it very bluntly, the, the type of minds that we need to attract to Islamic sciences are the most brilliant minds. It, you, you literally need the highest IQ people, the people who can read texts written a thousand years ago and as comfortably switch over and open a book of philosophy that was written yesterday and read it with the same amount of proficiency and ease. You won't, you won't get that with people who are not very talented and people who are not very smart. You only get that if you attract the 
absolute best interests. But how do you attract these people? You have to, you have to, you, it's unreasonable to say, yeah, come, you know, come to us, but you have to bear all the sacrifices as our doctors buy their second and third Mercedes and their fancy homes and, you know, show off how well off they are. Uh, you have to bear all the sacrifices and continue a miserable existence. That, that's, not, that's not how the world works. That's not fair. <clears throat> and that's why I, I truly believe that in our day and age, I would not want to be rich because I think the accountability of anyone who is wealthy in the present circumstances confronted by the Ummah is going to be scary. I would be terrified of being rich in this day and age. What uh, I mean, Allah, can we go through the list? Allah is going to ask me about Palestinian refugees, is going to ask me about Rohingya refugees, Allah is going to ask me about Syrian refugees, Yemeni refugees, and then we go and get through all the list of refugees. Then Allah is going to ask me about all the scholars who Allah all the, the, the brilliant minds that Allah sent to the Ummah and they were completely wasted and went, you know, ended up being um, losers in life because there's no support. And then, you know, after, after I'm questioned by all of that, do you think, what chances am I going to have of making it? I would be terrified. I, I mean, I, um, Yeah. Again, I can, can, I'm, Sharif keeps telling me stop insulting rich people so that they'll donate to the Asuli Institute. <laughs> but I just, I, I, I'm not insulting you. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you you're in trouble. I'm not insulting you. I'm just telling you you're in trouble. That's all. You're helping them take care, like be aware of their final day. Okay. Um, well, so we still have a couple of questions, but I know we want to be careful about not going too long. So I can hold these and we can see if we have time in the future. How long are they? Um, okay. I'll read you both questions and then if you, we can either pass them off for the future okay. or you can give them a super fast answer. Um, in ayah 12, sincere worship and being the first of Muslims are made two different sentences. Can you elaborate on the concept of being the first Muslim in this ayah? This one question. Second question um, is regarding sleep as a state of suspended death, and um, wondering about um, sleep with re in relation to dream interpretation or spiritual experiences. For example, when loved ones have passed away, how to know if it's godly and not from demonic spirits, or if the story of Sufi masters who experience rare spiritual phenomena while they're sleeping. Okay, second question, let's put it off because that's that, that will require a, a prolonged answer. But can you bring it up again next halakha? Okay, can you uh, remember? It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, okay. uh, the first question, uh, the, the Allah's command is, Umirtu an a'budullah mukhlisan lahu dini. And mukhlisan lahu dini. That I am commanded to purify my faith and commanded 
to be the first of Muslims. And the it is the purification of faith requires a commitment against a commitment against the ego and the things that we've we've talked about in 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 purifying your understanding of monotheism and the truly worshipping a single lord and nothing but a single lord but umirtu an akuna awwal almuslimin this was a a further step it's as if a step of moral courage if you try to reverse the process if you try to say i will declare myself the first muslim but you haven't purified your ego then we would have a gazillion islams because every egotistical megalomaniacal narcissist would say ah i am the first of muslim and what i believe is islam is islam but allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you no <laughs> hold on you first purify your iman before you dare set yourself on the foundation of believing you know i have to go with what my my convictions are even if i am a minority of one this is like what ibn taymiyyah said that sometimes the jamaa is a single person what ibn taymiyyah his his whole idea is actually based on this but Ibn Taymiyyah also says in his fatawa that don't dare a person who has not purified the self say that the jamaa is a single person it, it it's it's a common sense thing that you know if you're going to say i dissent and i'm going to hold on to my right to dissent and even if if it's a dissent of one i'm going to stick to it well you better make sure that a you are a knowledgeable person so that and b that you're dissenting for the right reasons because if you are dissenting just because of your ego like for instance because you want to be noticed you want to be known uh because you are a narcissist or you're a megalomaniac uh you are in big trouble so it is a a dynamic of yes have the bravery to stand your ground but first do your diligence in purifying and cleaning your faith so that you're not ultimately saying ana awwal almuslimin i am the first of muslims because you fundamentally worship your own ego as uh so many people do um it, it, you know the philosophy of modernity 
so many people, you know, I, I, okay, I'm going to tell you this because I can't resist. Modernity had a foundational moment. This is, I'm simplifying a lot, but it's okay. We had, there was Kant as a philosopher, and there was Nietzsche as a philosopher. And there was sort of a, a, a moment where Western philosophy could have gone the way of Kant or could have gone the way of Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the one who famously said God is dead and who wanted human beings to overthrow the divine and take the throne. Kant was far more modest than that and he was a very complex thinker very nuanced but also um had a very different set of morality understanding of morality so much of the cultural values that we are raised with whether you're muslim or if if you come from an urban center you've been infiltrated by these values whether you grew up in cairo or you grew up in new york or you grew up in delhi or because is the byproduct or the child product of nietzschean philosophy among the most prominent followers of nietzsche is someone like hannah arendt the, the, uh, even when we say we believe in, I mean, in this case, we believe in Jesus Christ and uh, we go to church on Sundays as, you know, Trump says or as so many Republicans do and when they, they, uh, they talk about wanting civilization based on recognition of Jesus Christ and so on but it, they're all the children of Nietzsche it, God is overthrown and absolute belief in virtue is dead the, the belief in goodness and beauty is non-existent um, If Muslims, if only if Muslims could have risen to the challenge, if only. So, I, you know, in a way I'm saying detox yourself from Nietzsche. You, you, you know, you have all types of Nietzsche cells in you. you just, <laughs> you're just not aware of it. So. Detox Nietzsche. Nietzsche <laughs> What? What did you say? No, he's asking. I said we have little Nietzsche homunculi. Little Nietzsche homunculi. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> little Nietzsche homunculi. Homunculus is like a tiny. Okay, so on that very <laughs> important note, um, thank you so much, Alhamdulillah, for another wonderful session. And uh, inshallah, we will look forward to seeing everybody on Tuesday. Inshallah. Have a great weekend. Assalamu alaikum. Take care.